It's the first weekend in the month. We're in the Old Testament, still in Ecclesiastes. Today we'll be in chapter 4, the first three verses. But as it's much more connected to chapter 3, we'll be reading chapter 3, 16 and following. The matter under discussion today is all the oppression that Solomon has seen on the earth, all the oppression done under the sun. Remember, under the sun we understood from looking at its use in the book, is referring to those things done on earth apart from God, especially those things done by people who are separating themselves from God, who have no faith or who have turned away from any faith their families have professed. And we've been seeing that in all things, life without God leads to hopelessness, pointlessness, Vanity. That's what vanity of vanities means when he says that. It's, there is no meaning to our life. There is no meaning to our possessions. There is no meaning to our power, our glory, our riches, apart from God. Because all of those will fail, if not in our life, certainly in eternity. And he is throughout the book examining all of those hopes that people turn to. We can feel better if, you know, if I just get richer, if I just raise my position in the company, if I, if I just have this thing or that opportunity. And we console ourselves with these things, and he's been showing all of those are worthless. But now he's showing two other things that are worthless, or one other thing, really injustice in general. And this week we'll be looking at um, the effect of oppression and the hopelessness that it brings. And we'll be tying that back in then to the theme of the book. So let us begin reading. And you'll have to excuse me today. I've had a cold all week and I still have some congestion. So, And a cough. <laughs> but Ecclesiastes 3, we'll start at 16. Because this is connected and I'll finish at verse 3 of chapter 4. So, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beast is the same. As one dies, the other dies also. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there was nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On one side of their oppression there was power. Uh, on the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. 
And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not yet been born, who has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you have put this book in your word, that you have breathed it out, that you have told us it is useful. And as we study through it, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that we might see and turn away from all the worthless things of the world and pursue what is lasting, what is truly able to satisfy, and that is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We know, Lord, the day of judgment will come, and as we have read this morning in Revelation 14, so it will come. And as we consider the subject of all the oppressions that are done under the sun, we pray you would open our hearts to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the subject of these first three verses is all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And he says in the middle of the verse, on the side of their oppressors there was power. I think it's important to think about that for a moment because power is a source of oppression. If somebody has no power, they cannot oppress you. They can annoy you, they can trouble you, they can vex you, but they can't really oppress you. Oppression requires a certain amount of power. And for the godless, what does power do? Power corrupts. They have the power, they think, why not use it to get what I want? I remember reading something recently where the person said, you know, since I have the power to get what I want, what's wrong with me just taking what I want? And that is the way of man. Not just in our day, in our age, but throughout all eternity. And as Solomon, the wisest man ever lived, when examined all of the pleasures of all of the things of the world. He looked at everything from pleasure to wealth to power, And he has given us, in the wisdom of God, a study in that subject. Many people really struggle with the book because it seems so depressing. And we'll get to the depressing part in a minute. But it's not. The depression is for those who are living apart from God, who want to try to have a life, want to try to have everything without God. Where it always leads them is to depression. And we spoke of the philosophers and how they've come up with all these plans and all these things. And if you look through history, particularly modern history, the last 500 years or so, since the Reformation even, where has it led them? Step by step by step, they become more and more depressed to where suicide was the only option. And now the fantasy of reality is whatever you want it to be. And truth is whatever you declare it to be. Because the truth they found was there was no meaning in life apart from God. And they have no God. Or they don't have the true God. And so power, though, is what corrupts them. I was reading or listening recently to a book where a Christian man, he was actually once a BP in the very early days, but 
he was examining the philosophers that, the, and the philosophy that lead to where we, we are, or where he was in the 1970s. And as you look at the philosophy that shaped Marx and his religion, and the philosophies going on, things like, since there is no truth, we decide what's the truth. Since we were the ones then, as the leaders, who decide what is good for the body, you know, everybody rise up workers and join together, and leaders have to come out of that, and the leaders become mini-gods, and they decide what's right. And what do you do with people who don't agree? Well, you force them to agree, or you force them to submit. So oppression comes, and they become far worse than what went on before. Power tends to do that. I have the power to make the decisions. I will decide, and what I decide must be carried out. And if it doesn't work, it's because you aren't willing, and you must be forced to be willing, forced to do, and then punished when it fails. Oppression comes. You know, what reasons, why do powerful people oppress? Or why do people who have any power oppress? Well, the first one is, of course, greed. Greed is idolatry, we read in Colossians 3.5. People want to have more. When Bill Gates became the world's richest man a long time ago, he isn't anymore, I don't think, but the time he was, he was asked, you know, when is enough enough? And the answer was basically, it's never enough, because it's not in the having, it's the getting, that the joy comes. So... If you know anyone who's worked at his company, it's basically a meat grinder. They hire kids out of college and burn them out in four to, four to five years and throw them away and get a new crop. I've met a number of people who work there, and it takes a long time to recover from that level of oppression. Why did he oppress? Because he wanted to be rich. He wanted to be powerful. Other people oppress because they find their own life miserable. I don't have joy in my life because I don't have God, they say. Well, I say they don't have God. That's why they don't have joy. But they say, there's no joy in my life. There's no comfort. I look at people, and I see their happiness, and it hurts me. That famous American author who said, whenever a friend of mine succeeds, a little something inside of me dies. Um, that attitude leads then, if they have power, to wanting to oppress others. Their own miserable life feels better if they make other people more miserable. Misery not only loves company, it breeds greater miseries. Others, they feel inadequate. Their power is not enough. They cannot control everything around them. You know, the, the person who wants to control everything and make sure it all works out properly, they have a miserable life. Because God's providence never allows them to control everything. And they try to control, but things don't work out. Oh, but things would have worked out if so-and-so had done this, and so-and-so had done that, and this had happened. I need to make sure those other things happen. So I must control other people. And so the one who feels inadequate, not powerful enough, wants to control everyone, and, wants, and the only way they can control people is by force. And you can manipulate some simple people, but most people, there needs to be the carrot and the stick, not just the carrot. 
It needs to be the oppression to get them to do what you want. They see themselves and they're happy with the misery of others. You can say, oh, I'm not as miserable as the other person. I'm not as weak, as powerful, as powerless, as worthless as they are, because I can dominate them and oppress them. And thus, oppression comes. That effort to make things work out completely correctly sometimes is motivated by good intentions. But Machiavelli was wrong. The ends do not justify the means. The means end up corrupting the end, the purpose. The efforts of particularly modern Marxism and their philosophical basis, you know, they have this idea, we will make the world a happier place by making sure everybody gets their fair share. If you think about the past, if you were a worker in a, in a factory in Europe or America, you were essentially a slave. I mean, many of them lived in factory towns where their rent and the prices they paid for everything from food to clothing was fully owned and controlled by the factory, by the corporation. And they lived like slaves. And we saw that in China recently. Oh, recently, I'm getting old. It's been a few years, 10 years maybe ago, where people who worked for Apple's manufacturing facility, because Apple was trying to keep the prices competitive while still getting richer and richer, they were working long hours and punished when they didn't make quotas. And there were people throwing themselves off the top of buildings to escape. And they had barbed wire on the buildings to keep people in. You know, the dormitories where they were forced to live. And they were committing suicide because the level of oppression was so miserable and so great. Good intentions to spread the wealth and make sure everybody is happy. When sinful man makes that his desire, it ends up being, as long as I'm happy. And the only way I can be happy because I'm miserable is to see other people more miserable. And it just goes on and on. There's a consequence, though, to the oppression, if you've ever noticed. People who are abused and oppressed, what do they do as they get older and get more powerful? They abuse others. You know, most child abusers were abused as children. It's a vicious cycle. It breeds, oppression breeds oppressors. And the oppressive people, the oppressed people often become worse. I mean, think about France under the, the end of the monarchy. Brutal, sadistic, oppressed everyone, left everybody you know, nearly in a starving, miserable state. So the people band together under Marxist theology and free ourselves from the oppression of the elite. But what happened? They were more oppressed under Marxism than they ever were under the monarchy. Think of China, same problem. You know, they got rid of the, the Chinese emperor and the royal family and established a pure communist state for the good of the people. How many millions of people died? How many millions were sent to death camps to labor away? to re-education camps, to be brutalized and oppressed and come back saying, yes, up is down and down is up. People who are oppressed will often become worse oppressors. Think of our day, you know, social justice. We need to take care of the injustice of the world, much of it imagined or made up. 
But what do they end up doing in return? Oppressing. They're no different than the ones who went before them. Now you might think this is terrible. Why do they do these things? Well, to feel better about themselves, to feel better about their inadequacies, to make things work out correctly. We already talked about those. But what about God's people? Shouldn't we be better? We know how to behave better. We know what God wants. Oppression is one of the things he hates. Oppressors and the injustice is injustice is something he really despises. But sometimes the church and the Christian can be just as bad. Why? Well, in part because the old man is still in there. We haven't fully purified ourselves from the what we were as a sinful man. Yes, we now have the image of God. We are being remade into his image. But until we become perfect, we still have those same sins in us. You know, why did Christians in the South so fervently support slavery? Kidnapping people and making them slaves was a capital crime in the Old Testament. They knew that that was wrong. We were made in the image of God, all of us. They knew it was wrong, but they latched on to evolution. Oh, you know, they evolved differently than us. They're not human as we are. And they unjustly oppressed even the Christian church. I've read some pretty horrible things in my time written by theologians of that period, defending slavery and denouncing those who opposed it, denouncing the church of the North for opposing it. Why do Christians do things like that? Well, in that case, I think it was greed. The old man. That's not the only kind. Weirwin was showing me something about ecclesiological tyranny this week. (laughs) Uh, It's it's real. People in the church, again, they want to control things. They want to make sure things turn out right. They want to make sure everybody agrees. And the only way to do that is to oppress them. When I first became a Christian, I met a number of people who came into the church after me and joined it. One of them had one day shown up with a little bit of lip gloss on and been kicked out of the church. It's a hussy. She and her husband and her whole family. And this woman wore clothes that make my choice of clothing look plain or look fancy. You know, she was totally plain and drab, nothing colorful, nothing. She just had a little lip gloss on. Another lady who joined the church had been given a theological test to make sure she was fit to join, and when she couldn't, that she couldn't pass it, they kicked her out. <laughs> uh, we, we hear about churches that are split over things like dispensationalism, where they come in, they get enough followers, they take over the church, and you either agree or you get out. But that's not the only way it works. Sometimes, you know, people wanting to make sure those bad things don't happen. They have good intentions. You know, we're going to protect the church by not allowing these bad ideas in. Even though the Christian person may be a Christian brother or sister, you know, thrown out because they don't understand. Or oppressed because they don't understand. Still others want to make sure everything goes right. And so anyone who won't agree is oppressed and destroyed. 
anyone who won't submit is kicked out. Just like we were talking a little earlier about the philosophical background of Marxism, you know, that's a human idea, and it corrupts everyone. Once, once it became a popular notion that it's okay to make people submit to what's right by using force and oppression, it becomes the norm. I and mean, I've seen it in my own life in the church where churches were driven out, crushed, destroyed, you know, some, I knew a church that had, what, a couple of hundred people on Sunday morning. I heard they were down to about 40 because they didn't agree and they were attacked and harassed and the pastor apparently couldn't maintain the proper heart attitude. The oppression got to them and it damaged the church. I know of several that have been destroyed and closed that way because they wouldn't submit. You know, where does the church get off? Oh, I have good intentions of you know, maintaining the peace and purity of the church by making everybody submit to me. Doesn't work. Oppression destroys. When the Christians do that, it's ultimately because they're not trusting God to work out all things according to the counsel of his own will. Our confession says that's what we believe but we act like we don't believe it when we have to control. Our job in the scriptures is not to control, but to pronounce. Pronounce the word of God. And yes, when somebody is teaching heresy, we tell them to be quiet. When somebody is living in sin, we call them to repentance. But we don't need to control what every person does and what every person thinks. That's outside of the bounds of what scripture calls the minister to. But people act as if they think God is too weak to accomplish his purpose. Unless I, you know, take extreme measures, God's purpose will fail. They think maybe God is too capricious and they need to rein God in by taking control of the situation. Or that God can't be trusted. Or that he's foolish. You know, when, when we try to take control and force the right situation to come out through unjust means, we're denying God. You know, we often, the church, will establish rules. And those rules are there to help keep the church pure and help keep peace in the church. But that's what the Pharisees did. No, we'll keep our purity by putting a, a fence around the, the commandment so that nobody can sin. It didn't work for them. It didn't work for the modern fundamentalists who made similar rules. No smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no going to movies. It doesn't work when the church tries to establish its own rules over the conscience of men. Only the word of God is our rule of faith and practice. Leaders will often enthrone themselves so they can make sure the church stays good. And they will decide, you know, who's harming the church, who's wrong in the church. They and they alone make those decisions and drive those people out. They become essentially popes and mini-popes. And it's not just the Church of Rome that has them. Every denomination has their own. Sometimes they get driven out. Sometimes they destroy the church. We had one who founded the VPs, the great, the great leader, 
Carl McIntyre. He went from hundreds of churches to when he died, he had one church and maybe five families in a building that could hold 3,000 people or 5,000 people. I went there, I was just shocked. Two people here, one person here. That was it. Another one there. This giant auditorium. Why? Because as he went on, we can't repeat the mistakes of the past. We can't allow this to happen to us again. So I need to take charge. I need to make sure everybody's on board. I need to make sure everybody follows the plan. One church, five or so families. I went there just after he died, maybe a year. I was sad, heartbroken. But I realized at that point, that's the danger. When we start to use oppression to fix the problems and make the church holy, we can't make it holy through sin. The Bible has a lot of examples of oppression. Mostly, most serious examples would be by countries. Israel, when it was in Egypt during, before it was actually called out, before the Exodus, you know, they were terribly oppressed. In fact, they were oppressed to the point where the midwives were told to kill any male children when they were born. Can you imagine the mother gives birth and you're helping her and you look at, oh, this is a male. You take out the knife and stab him. What kind of monstrous evil is that? But their oppression was brutal. And when Moses came, they doubled it, tripled it. Oh, no more wheat, you have to go, or no more straw. You have to go collect your own straw to make your bricks. Quota remains the same. Oppression to try and control them. And it was effective. If it weren't for Moses being there by God's power and God's authority and God telling him what to do, everybody would have given up and they would have been living in oppression. Uh, during leading up to the exile, the people of Israel were oppressing each other. You know, high, high, uh, high interest rate loans and gobbling up all the fields and basically becoming rich at the expense of their neighbor and selling them into slavery. That was one of the things that had God so angry. That led to the exile. During the exile, it was the Babylonians who were punishing Israel by oppressing them. You want to be the oppressor? Go see how it is in, a, in Babylon. Of course, Babylon, even though God raised them up for the purpose of oppressing Israel to show them their sin and to punish them, they are oppressing Israel with sin, and God promised at the same time that they would be judged and they would be punished down the road because God really hates oppressors. In the New Testament, Rome. Remember Jesus teaching that if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him too? There's a historical part of that that we don't necessarily remember. Under Roman law, a Roman soldier in particular could take his bag and say, you there, carry this. And they had to carry it because the Roman citizens, particularly the soldiers, were very high up compared to the people they conquered. But 
they put a limit on it. We call it one mile. I don't know how many you know, stadia it was in the Roman measurement system, but you have to go with them one mile. If you make somebody carry something more than a mile, you're treating them as a slave. That's apparently the rule. <coughs> but the Romans basically treated the conquered peoples as slaves. Paul was able to get different treatment. Remember, he says, is it lawfully for you to put me in chains and flog me when I'm a Roman citizen? Oops, no, we can't do that. We'll be punished. And they, they, you know, they took the chains off and stopped, you know, preparing to whip him. But the people of Israel were brutally oppressed by Rome. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was not that wonderful. It was maintained through brutal oppression and through you know, soldiers coming in and wiping everybody out if you got out of line. You see that oppression in scriptures. In Jesus' day, it was the Samaritans who were being oppressed by the Jews. Now, you remember who the Samaritans were, right? During the exile, rather than what, what the armies would do, is they would relocate the entire, pretty much the entire population to another place and take a population from another place and put it there. Why? Well, it's not your home. You're in a foreign country. You're less likely to be able to organize a rebellion, I guess. And the people of Samaria were brought in from outside. And they were very pagan. And their pagan worship offended God to the point that he sent wild animals to oppress them, to punish them. And they realized that was the problem. And so they got some Jewish priests to teach them the basics of how to appease God. And the Samaritan religion was born. Well, think about it, though. They were pagans. They worshipped as pagans. They included a little bit of worship of God to appease him. How do you think the Jews felt about that? And they weren't happy. And they oppressed them. You can see their attitude in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4 but also in the curse the Jews threw at Jesus in John 8, John 8, 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The two worst things they could think of saying to him, that you were a Samaritan and a demon possessed. Uh, that oppression was serious. But also we see it by the authorities. God said... Enough, O princes of Israel, put away your violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cleanse, you. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 45, 9. That was a perpetual problem that they had. They, they oppressed. They seized the land they wanted. They did whatever they felt like doing. You know, think of Ahab and seizing the, the field that he wanted by killing its owner. These things were common in Israel. It was a perpetual problem. Nehemiah, in chapter 5 of his book, says, I took counsel within myself and brought charges against the nobles and officials and said to them, you are exacting interest, or high interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly and said to them, as far as we are able, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who you have sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold 
to us. Everyone was silent because they could not find a word to say. Nehemiah got them to repent of their sin, buy back their brothers and stop doing that. But their trick was, oh, you're hungry? I'll give you some food. Oh, you need to pay me back. Oh, but, you know, there's interest. You need to pay me back again and again and again. Oh, everything's gone? Sell your family as slaves. Get the profit. Their unfaithfulness to God, their idolatry was the greatest problem, but this was probably the second greatest problem, oppressing God's people. In Micah, God says, The godly is perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They lie in blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters his evil desires of his soul, and thus they weave it together, Micah 7. Uh, the oppression of those in power in Israel was so terrible that we read about it over and over again in the Old Testament. God despised what they were doing, and yet they did it anyway, because God hates oppression. And oppression crushes the spirit of the people. Just as the people were willing to tell Moses to go away and not help us because of the impression getting worse, so throughout history, oppression has been a successful tool in breaking people and turning them away from their purpose and really in crushing their spirit so they won't even worship God. In the New Testament, Jesus gives the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. He has no love for justice. He has no interest in helping a widow against her oppressor. He doesn't care. Those in power were often about that. And those who were wealthy were the ones doing it. They had more than enough, but they wanted more and more and more. And thus, they oppressed. And we read in our passage, there was no one to comfort them. They cried, they wept for their misery. Why would no one help them? I don't have time to go into the book of Proverbs, but it speaks of that. The oppressed and the poor, why do you want to help them? You'll become like them. The poor who has no, no support, no finances, is being oppressed if you save them by giving money, what happens? Well, you'll become poor. And if they're being oppressed, what happens to anyone who helps the one who's oppressed? They're targeted too. If you put your lot in with them, you'll become one of them. The other way is no one comforts them is they, also, they offer worthless comforts. Follow our religion, follow our political worldview and we'll fix the problem, or we'll, we'll give you peace. And it just, it's not, not comforting. People who are oppressed see little hope. What happens when you're oppressed and you rise up and you throw off your oppressors? Well, the new oppressors come. <laughs> if you look politically at Europe, you know, they would rise up and overthrow the communist or the, the monarchy, and then the communists would come and oppress them worse. They would try to overthrow the communists, and <coughs> military dictatorship would come. And eventually people become 
unable to be comforted. But there is one true comfort. We read about that in 2 Corinthians. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul is introducing the book and he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted. There is a source of comfort for them. But his next statement is really the way the modern world sees it too. You're better off dead than living a life of oppression and and misery. Now, is he advocating suicide? No, self-murder is not the answer. It's just going to lead to more consequences, more punishment down the road. The hope has all been lost. The godless sometimes do want to die, commit suicide, because they have no hope. Because there is no hope in the world. There is no hope in worldliness. There is no hope in the sin of many political systems that promise you know, kill these people and everything will be better. It's not the way it is. Remember what Jesus said about the coming day of judgment? Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Not repenting of the sins and committing more sins, with every sin you commit, your debt to God is greater. You're basically, in our lives, if you're an unbeliever, every day you're piling up greater and greater punishment to be given to you. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? The anger of his master delivered him to the jailers that he should pay all his debt. He says, you will not get out until you paid the last penny. We read in the Old Testament that there is no sufficient payment to God for sin. There's no way to redeem ourselves. Every sin they make, though, makes their torment worse. Just as Tyre and Sidon had less than Chorazan and Bethsaida, so the one who dies will have less than the one who lives a full life, even if they're trying to be good because they're doing it all apart from God. They're just piling up their sins. So to them, there seems to be no hope. And it actually is good for them not to live or even to have ever been born. But for God's children, we read Revelation 14 for a reason. If you look at verse 13... I heard a voice from heaven saying this, write this down. Blessed is the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Now, for God's people, death under oppression is not to be thought of as 
a failure on God's part. It is a deliverance. This is not what we live for. We are strangers and pilgrims here. We are sojourners in this land. We live for eternity. And as soon as the sooner we get there, the better. <laughs> Paul says, better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And he means that. And, and we as Christians need to really take that to heart. We don't need to die in hopelessness, like he's talking about those under the sun, those apart from God. But that hopelessness is there. Without hope in God, there is no hope. Is there an antidote, you might ask? Well, let's go to Second Thessalonians. I'm going to start at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Suffering here would be their oppression under the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving Romans, driving them into suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to us. And the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So what is promised in that day? The relief from our oppression and a reward from God for enduring. And thus the antidote to the hopelessness of those under the sun is faith in God and faith in eternity and the hope of what is to come. Those who are oppressing us will face justice. If not today, if not in our life, and sometimes it does come in our lifetime. You know, think of the Jews and the prisoners of war held by the Nazis who were being starved and murdered in mass. Their deliverance came from their oppression. Other times we need to wait for God's return. Well, wait till when we go with him, we get relief from all of our oppression and all of our suffering and all of our trials, and we'll get a reward on the day he judges the world and gives those out. Justice to the oppressed comes. Compensation, the reward, if we flip over to chapter 4, it's talked about in chapters 4 and 5 a lot, but I wanted to read chapter 4, just 13 through 18. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public. Oh. I'm in the wrong book. I turned too many pages. It's like one page, and they stuck together. No, they really are stuck together. So, Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, four. through 18. But I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
But since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them and in the clouds to meet the Lord and always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So whether we live or die, we have him returning. And as is promised, often in the scripture, he will judge everyone. Their deeds will follow them and there will be a reward for the good and the punishment for the evil. And so that compensation is to come. Oppression sometimes seems like it will last forever. And I look at my country and I think this is going to be a real bellwether election next year. Will we turn from our insanity or will we embrace fully insanity in the hope as a nation, as a hope that insanity will prove better than reality? Um, the oppression could become more serious. Already people lose jobs and uh, some have lost children to the health and human services because of their faith. Uh, it could get worse in the future. We only have to look at other Marxist countries to see what's done to Christianity and to Christians. But God is able to turn it around. God could deliver us. Or it could be until the end, but at the end we will be delivered. End of our life will be delivered from the oppression. End of this age we will be rewarded for all that we do for Christ and suffer for him. So those under the sun have no hope and are better off dead. We, the believers, have great hope in a future. And Solomon does talk about it a few times in his book, but I've already run long. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that oppression is terrible. That oppression makes us feel that we are better off dead. And we know that we are, that if we are oppressed, we would be better off absent from the body and present with your son. But we know also that murder is wrong and self-murder is wrong. And we don't have the hopelessness of the world, but turn away from such things and glorify you with our lives. And pray that you would help us to do that, whether we are oppressed or not, that we would never live under the sun, but live in the kingdom of your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.